That is one of my favorite ungrammatical songs that I ever sing. And the way it ends up with praising God is the way my sermon will end up in about a half an hour, but it's not the way it's going to begin because I'm going to stick with the text. Before we turn ourselves uh, now to, to the Word of God, just a brief announcement. Last week, many of us signed a card, a birthday card, to a brother who's not able to attend because of his condition. Um, that's uh, Scotty Spencer, and he just wanted to send his thanks uh, to all of you for remembering him. Very encouraging. Not everyone is physically able to come, and, and if you're watching this, Scotty, we love you. We really hope that card meant a lot to you. My name is Douglas Jacoby, and I've been tasked today with preaching the message from Romans 11, of all places. Last week, we had a message from Jeff Hickman on chapters 9 and 10. I wasn't here. I was preaching in Los Angeles, but I did watch it, which is another beauty of the modern technology. You can watch it online, and uh, that was great. Uh, as we look at slide two, let me give you just a brief overview of where we've come so far. And this is important because not all of you have been here for all of the messages. In the, the letter of Romans, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a congregation in Rome, a congregation that's mainly non-Jewish, though he says the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Gentile. It's a congregation that's mainly Gentile. And we know that because he keeps calling them Gentiles, and also we know it from chapter 16. Most of the names there are not Jewish names, they're Greek and Roman names. And he's presenting the gospel message to them to make sure that they're all on the same page and that the trouble that's been brewing in the eastern Mediterranean doesn't make its way west to Rome and split the church. So he talks about the problem of sin in the first three chapters. He talks about the solution, which is not works of the law, but it's faith in Christ, and that's in the next two chapters. What does it look like when someone's really living according to Jesus Christ? When we're following not the flesh, but following the Spirit, and that's what we see in chapters 6 to 8. Then we move into the most difficult section, I think, of Romans. That's 9 to 11. And in 9 to 11, we look at what the gospel looks like on the corporate level, moving from the individual level to the level of God's covenant people, the Jews. And this is the big question, because if the gospel, you know, if God worked for centuries, almost millennia, to prepare a people, he had an old covenant, remember Moses, he has the law and all this stuff, and it looks like most of them have rejected the plan, is it a total botch? I mean, did God mess up? Did God slip up? Well, you can say no, but it certainly looks like he may have slipped up. And this is the big question that we have to address. And then in the final chapters, the next week will be in chapter, uh, the next Romans week will be in chapter 12, that shows us what it looks like when you live by the Spirit in the congregation and if you want to talk about being led by the Spirit, it's not about raising cats from the dead or uh, speaking in ancient Egyptian. Uh, 
being led by the Spirit has to do with how we interact with people with whom we differ on things. It has to do with how we view our enemy, whether we pay our taxes, and other such mundane things uh, in chapters 12 to 16. So that's what's on the way. Definitely chapter 11 is difficult. And and I'm going to tell you, uh, particularly if you're from a church tradition that's very Bible-focused, and here in the South, many of them are, you may well have been taught something that is at odds with what what I'm going to say. Firstly, I'm okay with that. I don't have to be right, neither do you. Secondly, I urge you to weigh what I'm saying, because what I'm going to say particularly about this issue of the church and Israel is a minority position. What I'm going to present today is not the position most uh, preachers, ministers, and pastors take. I'm just admitting it right now. I'm so outnumbered, uh, mathematically there's a good chance I'm wrong. I have wrestled with this sermon more than I've wrestled with any other message in the last two or three years, because I don't want to be wrong, I want to be faithful to the scripture. But this is not an easy one. And similar to last week when Jeff did 9 and 10, there's a significant uh, teaching element, not just preaching, and so I'm hoping that you'll be patient with all that. All right, we can't cover the whole chapter, but we're going to cover a fair amount of it. So we've got this church in Rome that's mainly Gentile, but what Paul said in Romans 1 is that the gospel is for the Jew first. Why even waste your time if basically the future of Christianity has nothing to do with Judaism if it's simply going to be a Gentile, that is, a non-Jewish thing? Let's look at the third slide and get into the text. I ask then, and this is the English Standard Version, that's the translation you see on the screen. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, who are his people? We're talking here about the covenant people, okay, the Jews. Paul says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, we'll pause there. It looks like God has slipped up because the response, so we are told, the response on the part of the Jewish people to the Christian Messiah was so weak that in the Gospel of John it says he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. He came, it's not just that the humans didn't receive him, but chosen people didn't receive him. Paul says, No, God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You can see already, this is not light subject matter for a Sunday morning, but I still think it's good. Besides, we had enough dancing and rejoicing in that last song. You should be okay for a little while. I certainly am overwhelmed myself. Now, God's not given up on Israel. This is going to connect with you and me because there are times when we may feel God's given up on us particularly when it seems that, oh, these people should become Christians by now. These people should have come back to the Lord by now. I should have had an impact here or there by now. It's taking forever. What's going on? See, I can apply this to to my life pretty easily. I think you can too. And in a way, I'm kind of happy that the middle school students and and the high school students aren't necessarily hearing the message today because this message will be appreciated especially by those who've been around uh, the Lord for 5, 10, preferably 
20, 30, 40 years. Paul says God's not given up on Israel. But what is Israel? As we saw last week in chapter 9, verse 6, not everyone descended from Israel is Israel, which means it's about how you define Israel. Now, if you're going to say Israel is the modern state of Israel, uh, Israel slash Palestine, well, then, of course, you're going to have some problems interpreting Romans. But Paul says Israel is not just the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel are the spiritual descendants. When God told Abraham, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can, so will be your descendants. I used to think he meant you're going to have thousands and millions of physical descendants, and these are the sons of Abraham, your, your literal uh, DNA offspring. But if I understand Paul right, he's not saying that. Because the children of Abraham are not necessarily blood relations, blood descendants, it's all men and women who live by faith. Now, if you, if you think I'm wrong on that, please reread Galatians and Romans and get back to me. But that's what I see Paul saying. And so 9.6 gives us an interpretive clue. Paul is an example himself of a Jew who has not been rejected. He's an example of a remnant Jew, a remnant Jew. We'll come to that in just a moment. And then you may have been a bit bothered by this word here, foreknew. Whom God foreknew? You mean like predestination? Well, that's actually not what it says. And it's even clearer in the original. It's not people like Susan, Jack, Tommy, and Habib. It's a pe the people as in the Jewish people. This is a singular. It's a collective noun. Who are the people whom God foreknew? the Jewish people, the covenant people. He foreknew, this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, God's plan with the patriarchs. He foreknew them. This was his plan. They were never forced to say yes. In fact, their own prophets said that they were saying no. But that is where we need to search if we want to interpret this and, and do justice to everything. So don't worry, there's no personal predestination. It's not like, well, sorry, April, God didn't foreknew for no you. So you're not going to make it, and you couldn't even have been chosen if you wanted to, because it wasn't in the plans. Sorry, Sam. You know, it just wasn't meant to be. That's not the way God is, because God is fair. And then he's saying that it's not by circumcision or Torah or, or having your, uh, your membership card showing that you're from the covenant people of God. It's about faith. And it's not about food. And we'll get more into this, not at lunch, but when we look at Romans 14. Because Romans 14, you've got people who have these strong opinions about what kind of food you're allowed to eat. Well, this is very much at the heart of Judaism. And you've got to be thinking about the struggle in Rome between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And this goes back to the first two sermons we had in this series. So what does this have to do with us, you might wonder? Well, Paul is anticipating an obvious question. What about God's people that he was working with, did he give up? He's struggling with the sense of God's absence, or let's say God's failure to act. Now, do we ever feel that? Do we feel God's absence, or do we feel God's absent? And they're quite similar feelings. One where, well, I technically believe in God, but I don't see any evidence in my life. I, I, I sense his absence, um, 
I sense he's absent. He was here, but he's not here anymore. Or his absence, like, I mean, this is something that's like a first cousin to atheism. And you may be a card-carrying member of the North River Church of Christ. But if you feel like God's not moving in your life, you may be sensing his absence in the way an agnostic would. So this has a lot to do with us, because if we're honest, we struggle. At times, we don't feel so close to God. Come on, admit that. In your heart, say amen. In your heart, you don't have to do it with your lips or anything, or confess it to be saved, chapter 10. I just, this is, it's, it's not a terrible thing if you struggle with feeling that God is absent. He's not coming through for you. There's an area of disappointment. There's a huge, this is an area of such disappointment. Remember last week, Jeff reading in chapter 9, 9-3, uh, that, that Paul has unceasing anguish. Every day he wakes up, he struggles with this very issue. What about my countrymen? To the point that he considers trading places with them. I could be rejected. I could take the wrath of God if it would make a difference for my people. The true heart of Moses, Exodus 32, 32. Okay, let's continue. Slide four. Do you know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. It is males, actually. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace wouldn't be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Is this easy? This isn't like Philippians 4. This is Romans 11. Just a few comments here. Elijah got so overwhelmed, feeling outnumbered, like no one's listening to me, although technically he had, I think, 101 people who were positive towards him, at least in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19. 101 people supported his message, but he felt like he was alone. God uh, comes into his life at a moment of self-pity. Sometimes God just leaves us alone. Other times God speaks uh, sense to us. But he, he comes in and he says, you're not alone there's 7,000 men who haven't compromised. I don't know what the population of Israel was. This is obviously way less than 1%, but it's a big difference between no one making it and just a wee little sliver of people making it. It's a remnant, a remnant, as you see there in verse 5. Paul says that some people are being hardened, and, it, and this sounds unfair. Hardened? See the, the last word on the screen. Hardened? Let's, let's look at slide 5. Hardened sounds like Pharaoh. That seems grossly unfair. God would harden you what choice you would have. Please, remember the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is constantly changing his mind, refusing to accept the word, and so however you interpret it, these are just two sides of a coin. He hardens himself, God hardens himself. Or, or whether they take turns, is actually immaterial to my point and to Paul's. The point here is that God never hardens people who are receptive to his message. If we are determined to, reject, to be self-seeking and to reject the truth, then we're hardened. 
But if we're open to God, then we're not hardened. In other words, we're soft if we want to be soft. How soft are you? And I'm not talking about around the midsection. I'm talking about <laughs> in your heart of hearts. How soft are you? Flexible, plastic, malleable. Where are you? Paul says some were hardened, but it's not against their will, and this means it's fair. And you'll notice, he says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So even in Paul's day, there are a certain number of covenant people, of Jews, there are a certain number of them who are going to make it. And that's good. Please don't get hung up on the exact percentage. There's a huge difference, though, between zero, none, and a few. Whether that's thousands or not, don't get hung up on that. Slide six. So I ask, did they stumble, and they, they means the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is it irreparable damage? Fall is normally a, a, a word that, that's fatal, like fall, uh, not just stumble, whoops, but fall is like falling off a cliff, like falling away, like the point of no return. And Paul says, by no means, rather, through their trespass, the Jewish trespass, salvations come to the Gentiles, and then this is interesting, to make, the, to make Israel jealous, to make them jealous. This is Paul's insight. He's been saving the whole letter. Like many Old Testament passages, Paul thinks of the Gentiles being saved with the Jews, that God's people would be a light to the nations and would attract outsiders, and this is all over the prophets, it's even all over the Torah, you know, the first five books. But here, it's, it's kind of reverse. So a lot of the Jews say, no, we'll just sit this one out. And here are the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, having a great life, being transformed by the Messiah, Jesus. And the Jews are looking at that and saying, wait a minute. They're having a lot of fun. They're the ones, wow, look at the changes in their life. That's, what are they doing? They're using my Bible. They're using my Bible passages. They're, they're saying that these are their forefathers, but they're my forefathers. Give it back. What are you doing? And the Jews will see what's going on with the Gentiles and rethink and actually become jealous. And that jealousy will make them get up out of their chair and take a closer look, and eventually turn themselves in. Now, that's Paul's vision. Reread the section another time, but you'll see he talks about that, and his argument comes from uh, Deuteronomy, and it comes from Isaiah, and I can't get into it all right now, because that would take, take quite a while to, to lay out, but it's there. So it's a very biblical vision of seeing, it's not exclusive, this gospel. He's seeing that everyone will make it, Jews and Gentiles, and people will reconsider their position. This reminds me of Luke 15. Someone wanders away from God. And what does he do eventually? The prodigal son, what does he do? He's there feeding the pigs, and he just starts thinking, you know, if I went back, it wasn't that bad. In fact, he was pretty good. And he makes a turn in his heart and then with his feet, and he goes back to his father. But it, it says in that parable, Luke 15, that, that he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. 
I think it's a similar process that we go through. Sometimes if we wander away from God, we come to our senses, and then we come back. We realize we're missing out, and this is great news. Now, we have to admit that things are very different now since Paul's day. Since the first century, well, really, since the fourth century, Christians have made it incredibly hard for Jewish people to respond to the gospel because of their anti-Semitism, because of the way they got tangled up uh, with politics and war and torture and everything else. Originally, it wasn't like that, nor was it meant to be. But that's a different message entirely. Was Paul writing about Judaism in the 21st century? I'm asking you a non-rhetorical question. Or is he asking about Judaism in his own age? This idea of the Jews becoming jealous, is that something that was the plan for the end times, that is like the year 2150 or something? Or is, or is he talking about the first century? I want you to think about that. Which one makes more sense? Now, I know what some of you have been told here in the South. You've been listening to your radio, and you've heard that the Lord is coming back any day, and there's going to be a mass conversion among the Jewish people. And even right now, that's why we need to support Israel. There's going to be a mass conversion. What, they're all going to be converted? Does that strike you as a bit odd? Why do you do it in the day of Isaiah, when the Assyrians were knocking on the door? or the Babylonians in the time of Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or the Persians. Why wait three three millennia? So just the most recent generation gets a buy, and all the previous generations stand condemned by the prophets? You've got to think about that. I'm not done. Let's go to slide seven. (laughs) But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Earlier on, like chapter 2, he really hits very hard the Jewish people about not being arrogant. You think you're God's gift to the world. Now he's turned it around. Now he's challenging the Gentiles. You, you, okay, Israel rejects their Messiah, and now you guys think you're superior to them. Ho oh, ho, remember, you joined their party. It wasn't that they joined your party. And I know there are different metaphors here, so don't hold them too tightly. The, the metaphor Paul uses is of a graft. Not graft as in City Hall. Um, graft, nor, nor graft, we think of bone grafts or skin graft, or I guess you can graft just about anything. But in that time, the graft was the olive graft. I mean, olives are like the most important crop in the Mediterranean world. And he's saying that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are an olive plant, which normally is not that productive, and it's grafted into the domestic olive tree. Okay, you don't have to be a botanist to know that grafts can work. But that's his analogy. If we're not Jews, we've been grafted in. So we were outsiders, now we're insiders, even as, ironically, the insiders have become outsiders. And another reason we should be humble is that all the cool stuff in Christianity comes from the Jews anyway. It does. The promises, the patriarchs, the law, the true God, I mean, who God is, their history, scripture, 
which means, by the way, we need to make, make an effort to, to study this stuff. I mean, it's all the cool stuff. The Messiah, the Christ himself, Jewish. The graft is not parasitic. When you're grafted into the body of Christ, or you can use the olive tree if you prefer, you're not just grafted in, okay, so that like a vampire bat or a mosquito, I can just park myself there and suck up, you know, the blood, the nourishment. Yes, the graft partakes in the nourishment, but that extent, it becomes an extension of the plant itself, and so now it's giving, it's in a system. It's not just there to take, but it becomes part of the tree and it gives back. Oh, that, now there's a whole lesson there, how we ought to be when it comes to giving, and that flows from the graft. Uh, number eight, please. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. All Israel will be saved. Now I'm confused. I thought you said they weren't going to be, and now you say they are going to be. No, it went back to definition. All Israel, if Israel are the physical descendants of the patriarchs, yes. Then even if you don't have faith, you're going to make it with or without your permission. But if we take Paul's definition back in chapter 9, that Abraham's children aren't the physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants, then we see that God didn't botch this job. Everyone will make it. He's not forgotten anyone at all. Now, there are different views about this, and this is where I, I said I'm totally outnumbered. So some people would say, all this will be saved is an expression of optimism similar to John 12. Uh, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. John 12, 32. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone will come, but that's the idea. Not that all Israel will be saved, but the idea is that in this way, all Israel could be saved. Expression of optimism. Others would say that, it, that all Israel means the, that this includes the remnant of the Jews in the first century. That is, those Jews who were living faithfully at the time. That makes sense to me. The dominant view among evangelicals, that is Bible-believing churches today, is that there's going to be a mass conversion. And I don't mean to show disrespect to anyone who holds that view because it's held by many intelligent people. And I know where they get it from. I mean, it does seem to be what this passage is saying. But when I back up from this one verse, verse 26, when I back up and take a better look at it, it doesn't seem to be quite so simple. Because in this view, and often this view will translate that word full number instead of fullness, but it actually says the fullness of the Gentiles. It'll say it's a full number. Like after Gentile baptism number 113,229, after the full number, then all the Jews will get baptized. I think that this view, this, this common view, is also somewhat patronizing. It's like, oh, well, you Jewish people, you don't even know it. You know, you're all going to become Christians one day. Really? Well, what if I don't want to? doesn't matter what you want. It's God's plan. I just think that's a little condescending, probably a lot condescending. 
and it seems to rule out personal choice. Slide number nine. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full, oh, we just read that, didn't we? Until the fullness has come in. Let's keep going then. Let's say that Paul was predicting 21st century events. Let's say it never happened. All Israel wasn't saved, and it's going to happen any day now. Stay tuned to your favorite radio station. Let me reword this. Paul would be predict, Paul would be telling the Romans, although things may be discouraging in our outreach to our Jewish friends, it's okay. There's great news. Because in a hundred generations, or 2,000 years, there'll be a mass conversion of the Jewish people. Would that be encouraging? Or what if I updated it this way? Although many Jews are turned off to Christianity now, here in Georgia in the year 2014, or even disinterested in religion, it doesn't matter. Because in the year 4,040, there's going to be a lot of Jewish baptisms. Would that encourage you even slightly? You mean like all my Jewish friends will be dead? Yeah, and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, yeah, they'll all be dead. But in a hundred generations, there's going to be some activity on on the chart. I mean, it actually sounds laughable, like it's irrelevant. I mean, it's hard enough to care what's going to happen in five years, isn't it? And I'm telling you, get ready. In 2,000 years, I mean, you're going to have the attitude of Hezekiah. Oh, okay, so they're going to invade. Fine. As long as there's peace in my lifetime, I'm okay with that. So it, it, it can seem completely irrelevant. Well, why do so many people lean towards the idea that the Jewish mission was a failure in the first century? I get this all the time. I had a, a rabbi once told me uh, Christianity was a failure. It, it failed to reach the Jews. But we forget, and he forgot, that the early church was Jewish. The Romans, yeah, but this is in a generation. The early church, Jesus is Jewish. The apostles are Jewish. They're using the Jewish Bible. Missions began always in the synagogue. They, and they, they used the beachhead of preaching to the Jews first, and then they went to the Gentiles. It was thoroughly Jewish. Maybe it's uneasy feelings stemming from the historical treatment of the Jews. No surprise if it's connected with the Holocaust. The feelings are so strong, this could drive interpretation. doesn't matter what the text says. This is strong. What was done in the Middle Ages, as a student of history, I never fail to be shocked by what's been done in the name of Christ. Or Zionism. And many churches believe today that 1948 and the reestablishment of the State of Israel was the fulfillment of Scripture, as opposed to the fulfillment of lobbying Parliament and Congress. Because the Bible actually says that God brought them back to their land in the 6th century before Christ. Yeah, but he had to do it again. Well, maybe, but we can't just state that. We can't only assert it. We'd have to prove it. And I myself am quite skeptical that anything happening in the Middle East today has anything to do with the Bible. Well, what about Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan? What about the the crazies down in Yemen? Uh, what about the stuff in Jordan? And it's all in the Bible. Egypt and what? You're going to compare Mohammed Morsi to Pharaoh? The Islamic Brotherhood is like the, the chief magicians or something? These uh, are stretches. And I think it's irresponsible to, to embrace any kind of view like that 
without solid scripture on your side. You can't just take it off the radio. I mean, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but you, you gotta you gotta back it up with scripture. Okay. I think it makes more interpretive sense if this conversion of the Jews is in his lifetime. Not to say that Paul was wrong, but actually all Israel was saved. The entire remnant, the entire remnant, and Paul's an example of them, made it in the first century. God didn't slip, and he's not going to miss anyone out. Of course, we don't care about history so much. We care about our children. I had a phone call this weekend. Incredible news. A father tells me his son, who wandered away from God, who left the Lord 15 years ago, 15 years ago, watches things develop in his life, attempting to do it his way. He looks at his Christian family members. He does a lot of thinking about the issues, and he just, a few days ago, turns himself in and says, what am I doing? I'm coming back. See, normally we write someone off. Oh, he's been gone six months. It's not looking good. She quit a year ago. Wash my hands of her. Ten years, let me shake the dust off my feet. What about 15 years? And as I've told many of you before, even my own brother had quit the church for 10 years and he came back. If your friend quit and it's not even been 10 years, you're giving up way too early. But this is so encouraging because I think there are quite a few of us in this room who would be weeping with joy to receive a phone call that a wayward son or daughter had come back. In other words, that God was there all the time. He hadn't slipped. Everyone's going to make it. It's fair. Everyone's going to make it who God wants to make it. And we need to have trust in his faithfulness. And that applies to me. Number 10, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This beautiful closing of the chapter is the language of Job. As he says, it's all grace. It reminds me of Psalm 131. The point is that it's not a botch. The Old Testament was not messed up. It's awesome. God's awesome. His plan is awesome. He didn't slip up. His people messed up. The covenant wasn't wrong. Hebrews 8, it was human weakness. What are the applications? God's faithful to his people, number 11, slide 11. We should trust him. Secondly, if I'm right, we need, some of us need to spend a lot more time in scripture than we do, especially the Old Testament. On the other hand, another application is because his paths are untraceable, don't knock yourself out saying, I must understand everything or I'm not going forward. I'm not going to be baptized or I'm not going to be cooperative or unless I get all my questions answered, unless I fully understand predestination and free will, I'm out of here. Uh, because you, your mind may just not be big enough to understand it to start with. And the proper posture is one of humility, one of humility. There's a remnant. Live by faith like Paul. Paul is used to being in the minority, like Elijah, like you and me. The numbers may be small. We may be small, but get used to it. That's a biblical uh, reality. Being grafted in. Don't be overconfident. Don't get sucked in by the teaching of the South. Jeff hit this last week very nicely. Oh, well, I'm not grafted in. I, I stand on historical premise, and I, I'm God's people, and I saved, and everyone I know is saved, and we don't, 
Yeah, you can be that way. That's the exact error that Paul is challenging in the book of Romans. You can't just say, I have this pedigree, therefore I'm okay. You can't do that. You actually have to have faith That's what, and, are, and live by faith. And that means that we're grafted in. We don't just suck and take and receive, but we give. We contribute. We give something back. And then God's plans are never a botch. He didn't slip up. The Old Testament was not an abortive experiment by an incompetent professor of science, by some, uh, I mean, God, things were going according to his plan. If we'll be humble, he'll move in our lives. And God may feel absent. That's very possible. But we can be certain that he has not failed us. Number Number 12. Let's close by reading one last time this beautiful passage, which is a word of praise and a positive way to end a serious lesson. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. 